Well, hello, church family. I don't get to do this that often, so it's kind of fun. Yeah, so don't heckle me. But my mom already said she's coming to second service just to heckle me. Um, so I've got the, that to look forward to. Um, <laughs> thank you. Hey, you got a baby coming, bro? <laughs> anyway, it's super good to be up here. We've been in this series uh, of Matthew for quite a long time, just last session. We are in this really dark moment, this moment where the, the humanity of Jesus becomes so visible, right? There's this anxiety and stricken feeling of praying in the garden, appealing to his Father that if this cup, if this cup could be taken, but you know what? Not my will, but your will be done, Father. That's what brings us really into today. I mean, and, and with all of that, you have the fact that the disciples uh, are, in a way, not there for him. They fall asleep when he tells them to stay awake. And then finally, after three of those prayers, he says, look, okay, the time's come. Betrayer's here. And that brings us to today. And what I want you to pay attention to today is there's going to be, Jesus is going to interact with different folks. And it's important to understand that. You're going to see, I'm going to try to lay out a series of reasons why what happens today in the betrayal and in the trial is absolutely unjust. It's absolutely unjust. And the things, I'm going to give you stuff that you probably haven't ever heard or may, maybe some of it, maybe some of you have. And there, but there's so many layers of how this is so wrong and yet, it still happens. So I want you to think deeply about what we're to learn from this. What is it we're supposed to take away from this moment that has all of these layers of injustice that are happening? And in fact, it's not just that. It is layers of injustice and abandonment and, and <sighs> horribleness from even people that are close to him. So hold that in your mind as we go through this. We're going to jump through a good portion of text. Um, so hold on to your seats, okay? This is our first set today. It says this. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss, I will kiss as the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So already you're seeing <laughs> this absolute betrayal, right? Someone on the inside. In fact, all three of the synoptic gospels want you to know Judas came one of the 12. And of course, he's meaning one of the 12 disciples, one of the inside insiders, these are the people that have spent the last years with him, watching him show what the kingdom is like through all of his healing and through his miraculous and also from his straight-up authority. He can say things. He can command the storms with his voice. And they, they have been with him this whole time, but somehow there's one who would actually lead this charge of giving over Jesus and as we know from previous sessions, he actually does it for a pittance. 30 coins of silver. He's like, that's enough. That's all I need. That'll get me 
to where I want to be. And, and with him is this great crowd. And I want you to keep track of this because, um, in fact, today is Palm Sunday, right? Many of you have your little, your little crosses from the palms. This today commemorates the day that Jesus comes in on a, on a colt and is, is, has Hosanna in the highest said about him, right? There's this idea of praise and that this, this might be this messianic figure. Great crowds then, great crowds now, but this time, instead of wielding palm fronds, they're wielding swords and clubs. And where do they come from? Well, they come from really the religious elite. Everyone who's in power of that day, those who would run the temple complex, those who had any say in judicial matters of Israel, that's who has sent the, the great crowds and Judas at the head, at the lead of all of them. And it says he came up to Jesus at once, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. What a sign of betrayal. I mean, what you have to recognize is we don't probably do this that much in our culture, but greeting with a kiss would have been something that was more common back then. Um, arguably, you might not have done that to your rabbi. You would wait for your rabbi to move first, but it doesn't matter. This is an, a, a sign of closeness and intimacy, and this is what he chooses. He says, hey, you know what? You're going to know the right guy because it's the guy I'm going to kiss. You have to see this scene. It is the dark of night, right? We, we are so used to the light of the city that we can actually see things when there's no lights on most of the time. But you have to imagine in this garden, in Gethsemane, you have some tree coverage. It's late at night, and you have a great crowd. Why do you have a great crowd? Well, how do you ensure that you're going to take over? Whoever is there, you, you're going to do it by, I've got more. I've got more on my side to take this on. And in fact, there's all kinds of dangers here, right? It's in the middle of the night. How do you know who's on your side and who's not? You see, there's this, it's, it's this ominous middle of pitch black coming to Jesus to take him. And he, they needed to tell him which one was the right one to take. So he kisses him. Friend, do what you came to do. There actually is, is, I believe there's not even a verb in this. It's almost like Jesus is just saying, hey, I'm here. Do it. That's fine. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? One of those. It just says one of those. Now we know from other other gospel accounts, that the one of those is probably who you'd expect, right? This is our buddy Peter. Peter actually is the one who, who reaches out with his sword. He cuts off the ear of, of Malchus. We have that from one of the, the other accounts. Um, but you see, there's this, you look at Peter and you look at what's gone on all along. He's not acting out of his norm. Think about it. Who's the one to step out on the water? Peter. He's the bold one. He's the courageous one. And he does sink. But again, none of the other disciples are stepping out. You have Peter. He's, he's the one who would say, Jesus says, who do you think I am? And he says, I think you are Messiah, son of the living God. Right? 
He's got this boldness. He has this idea. He is a leader in a sense. And then not just a few moments later, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> the reason is, is Peter has an idea. He has a thought about what's supposed to happen. He has an idea of the way things are supposed to go down. Peter also uh, is the one who decides to, you know, build tents for Elijah and Moses when they come in Jesus' transfiguration. He's like, okay, we just, hey, can we just set you up with some places? I really want this to, to keep going, so let's, let's build you tents. This is the Peter, the same Peter. He loves Jesus. There's no doubt of that. When, when the, uh, the tax collectors from the, of the two drachma tax, the temple tax, come to him and say, hey, does your teacher pay that tax? And P Peter's just like, yeah. He didn't really, I mean, I mean if, you look, if you read the context, it's like, he's just answering because, again, he's, he's pointing towards this idea of what his teacher and Messiah is supposed to do. He continues to push. And then the absolute latest moment, Jesus says at the, the table, at the Passover meal, he says, one of, one of you are going to betray me, and you're all going to flee. And what does Peter say? Not me. Not me. I'll never leave you. I'll never leave your side. You see, and, and we'll, folks, Peter believed that. Have you ever had that moment where like, you, you literally believe this, but you, after something happens, you realize, well, maybe I didn't really know myself that well. So this is, this is the Peter. This is the Peter who Jesus is interacting with in this moment. And here's what he says to him. Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Hey, this is not the time and place for this. There's you are doing something that is going in the wrong direction from where I'm going. And in fact, it does say, by the way, he stretches out his hand with a sword. And if you think about it, that's the exact same language that was used about Jesus stretching out his hand to touch a leper. You see the difference between how Peter sees things and how Jesus sees things. And Jesus continues and says, hey, look. Do you not think I can appeal to my father and he would have 12 legions of angels? Why 12? Probably because of 12 disciples. A legion was a Roman military uh, number. It was basically, a, a, this is 6,000 men, a military force. And he's saying, I could get one of those forces for every one of you. Don't you think I could do that if I appeal to my father? Jesus is saying, you, you're trying to pick up something and, and with weight that I already have taken care of. And you're not, you're not realizing the fact that I've got this. But this is common. This is common for the disciples. They aren't quite getting it. But there's another thing about this. Do you not think that I can appeal to the Father? What just happened? Jesus appealed to the Father. Very section right before this. He reaches out to the Father and says, Father, if this cup can be taken from me, if there's any other way, but not my will, your will be done. That is the messianic vision that Peter and the other disciples don't quite have. They haven't quite captured it. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, 
that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Twice now you've heard that scripture fulfilled. The previous one you're, doesn't really say. There's not one before it. This one seems a little bit more obvious because pre- previously, last week, we heard about, hey, if you strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter. And the very next line is, all the disciples left him and fled. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, at that hour, this is dark, this is middle of the night, I, here's where we get into how you need to be thinking about this, this event that's happening. You have this group of people that are, are bringing Jesus to court, they're bringing him to justice. And the way this would work is there's something called the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and they were the highest court. They were 70 wise elders, 70 wise men, and then typically the chief priest would be the 71st. You have this group of 71, and whenever there was something that no one could take care of, if they couldn't decide on it, whether it came from all the way in a far city and there's judges locally and they figure out that they can't decide on it, then it moves up and it moves up and it ends up being at the great Sanhedrin. These men coming together to make these decisions. But this is in the middle of the night. And Jesus says, have you come out with me? Like, didn't, didn't you realize I was right there in the temple courts where you guys actually are all the time. I was there every day, and yet you would come out at this hour in this manner as if I'm some thief or simple brigand. Day after day, you didn't seize me. This is from the Talmud. There's this document that... um, was used as kind of the, uh, it includes some commentary, all of the oral law, and there's a tractate in it called Sanhedrin. This is Mishnah Sanhedrin. And this gives you some of the ideas. I'm going to show you a few elements from this today. You'll see how this very trial that they're putting on is bogus. In capital cases, they hold the trial during the daytime, and the verdict must also be reached during the daytime. In capital cases, a verdict of acquittal may be reached on the same day, but a verdict of conviction not until the following day. Do you see what's happening here? Court case is going on at night. And you're going to see that the way this process is out, even the verdict gets made that night. There's no delay. There's also, if you really think about it, we're in a holiday. We're in a high holy day. The Sabbath is coming. It's Passover. You don't end a court trial on Sabbath or Passover. So in the middle of the night... Jesus is stolen away after being betrayed by one of his insiders, and this case begins. And we know right now the time was clearly off. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. The shepherd has been struck, and the sheep flee. So not only Judas, who has betrayed him and been there present to do so, now and Peter who has chosen the wrong methodology, but now you have the disciples that scatter. They're gone, leaving Jesus. They've abandoned him. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Those who had seized him Took him where? It took him to Caiaphas's house. Okay. In, in one of the other gospel accounts, there's an, uh, a, a place where they go to Annas' house first, then Caiaphas. Annas was the previous high priest. Caiaphas is the new high priest. So he goes to both of these houses. 
And it says where the scribes and the elders had gathered. This, this idea of the Sanhedrin, this, this judging crew was there to judge him. But here's the important thing. This isn't how trials happened. Not only was the timing important, the place was important. The same Sanhedrin tractate says this, there were three courts there in Jerusalem. One convenes at the entrance to the Temple Mount. One convenes at the entrance to the Temple Courtyard. And one convenes in the Chamber of Hewn Stone. It's a place that's up in the northern wall of the Temple Complex. And that, that is where the, the final, that's like the final judging place. But yet they're having this at night in the high priest's house. And they're saying that, oh, the Sanhedrin are all there. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is, this, what is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remains silent. Chief priests and the whole council, whole San, San, Sanhedrin's there. Well, not really. Luke says this, when it comes to Jesus' burial, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, and had not consented to their decision or action. Wrong time, wrong place, not all the right people. You see how this is laying out layer by layer of injustice. Why? Because the religious elite are trying to get a job done. They have an outcome in mind. They're seeking false testimony, and they might put him, that they might put him to death. Now, this is an easy one. I think all of us can look at this and recognize, well, there doesn't, I don't require anything from the Mishnah to tell me that this is wrong. If any of you are reading your Bible at all, you know that in Exodus, it says there's a couple things you're not supposed to do. One of them would be bearing false witness. So now you have the high priests that are doing this particular court case, and now they're saying, hey, <laughs> they're seeking false witness. They want it to happen. And why? Because they want to kill him. They want to have a valid reason to kill. And they will do anything to get to that answer. So even if all of the, let's just say all the Sanhedrin stuff I'm showing you is all wrong, I'd say this is a pretty strong argument that this is an injustice that is happening. The witnesses say, the man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. I don't know about you guys, but if you read your gospel account really well, you'll recognize Matthew doesn't have this. Mark doesn't have it. Luke? I don't think so. John has something that says, seems, sounds very similar to this. And, and I would suggest that Jesus does say something like this, but the witnesses say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. John recounts it this way. In the middle of Jesus coming in and emptying the temple courts, he makes the whip of the cords and starts smacking people, turning over tables. And after that, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What authority do you have to do this? And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
Even the language that's being used against him is being twisted. And I would even suggest what Jesus has said here, destroy this temple. It does say that he's talking about his body, but I think it is also saying about the real temple. You, who's destroying? You're destroying the temple. It's no longer meeting the purpose that my father had for it. And that's something you'll find in all of the gospel accounts. Jesus is saying is that the temple is now dirty. The glory's not there anymore. You have made it so because you've made it a place of thieves and no longer a place of prayer for the nations. So, Jesus doesn't say he's going to destroy this temple. He's saying, when you destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? We have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. These words are incredibly powerful because Jesus is grabbing hold of two things. He's grabbing a hold of the scriptures that this judicial group held in such high regard, and he mashes them together. Psalm 110 talks about, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I, until I put your enemies un, as a footstool. Sit at my right hand. And then the other is, is Daniel 7, and we've seen this happening over and over again. When you see the Son of Man almost... The majority of the times, as Matthew's writing it, it's calling back to this moment. Son of man generally just kind of means human, but there's this moment in Daniel where Daniel's having a vision, and he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there was one coming like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all of the peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. Sitting at the right hand, this amazing image of the one who would be ascending to kingship under the ancient of days, under Yahweh himself, under God himself, is is going to put this one in power and give him an everlasting dominion. This isn't just a temporary thing. And Jesus grabs a hold of these two scriptures, jams them together, and you, you can't be shocked that they're upset because they know their Bible. And they say, no, this is blasphemy. I want to tell you about one thing that's a little interesting. Jesus actually is very careful with his words. Very careful. You see how he says, at the right hand of power. Because when you get into the actual blasphemy laws, um, there's this idea that in a trial of blasphemy that a Sanhedrin would have, what happens is no one wants to hear the curse on God, right? So if you say, if you proclaim uh, God's name, his personal name, out loud, it is considered to be a curse. And you can actually be stoned to death for that by Torah. So the Sanhedrin 
they have these rules that it's in the tractate, and it's so long I didn't want to put it up there for you, but it's, it's super interesting because what happens is if someone uses God's name and they curse him, everyone in the trial that are witnesses, they don't use the same name. They come up with an, something to sub in. So they might use like, yeah, it doesn't matter. You, you wouldn't use the term Yahweh. You would say, Joseph, he said that, we heard him say, Joseph, and curse the Lord. Because you don't say that name. You would just be propagating blasphemy, right, by having them send a name. But, but to be sure, what they would do is they would take them into a separate room, the key witness, and they'd say, okay, what did he really say? Away from everyone else, because they don't want this blasphemy uttered out loud among many peoples, but they want to be good judges. So they want them to say, well, what, what did he actually say? And then the person would tell them, and they'd have a couple of other witnesses. And the witnesses would not utter the same thing. They would simply say, yes, we heard that too. This is how blasphemy trials would have worked. Did you sense any of that happening here? This is a late-night trial of some dude's courtyard where they're making a snap decision. They're bypassing all rules and regulations for their own purposes. They think Jesus is that big of a threat that he must be gone. Jesus doesn't even, doesn't even say God, whereas actually the, the high priest does twice. Tell us, you're son of the living God? Jesus just says, I'll be seated at the right hand, or the son of man will be seated at the right hand of power. And what is your judgment? He deserves death. We've already said it. This is from another part of Sanhedrin. If you find him innocent, you set him free. Otherwise, you leave his sentence over for a day. You think on it for a bit. You wait. You want to make sure you're making a humble, correct, wise judgment. So you wait. If you feel the weight of what's gone down, I mean, even going back to, like, just the kiss from Judas. I don't know about you, but my gut is, like, I wanted to punch him right in the face. Right? I mean, like, don't you feel like you're like, no, what is going on here? You're like, Jesus, I think you should spit in his face, kick him in the shins, do whatever. I mean, it's just, this is so wrong from, from the very beginning all the way through this. It's just so wrong. And, and yet Jesus, for the most part, remains silent. He says this one line. He responds to Judas, says, hey, just get it done, right? So I want to just go through this one more time. You have the wrong time. You have the wrong place. You have the wrong people. You have the wrong motive. Even I'm, I'm using that as the, like the law. You've got a law that says you shouldn't bear false witness, you shouldn't, you shouldn't murder, but somehow that didn't work into the calculation. You have bad evidence. The very quote that they're using isn't even the thing that really gets him in trouble. It's his own words. And you have an unjust verdict. I'm sure we could find other things. Uh, but ultimately, this goes to one particular thing. When we do things, we typically, 
have a goal in mind. I take actions, I make decisions in order to get to a place, right? I, I want this to happen. But that can be a problem. And this is kind of pointed out, I noticed this. Peter has this one little line, even though he was the one who pulled the sword, but there's this one little line that actually identifies him, and it says this. Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. The reason why I even stopped, I'm like, that just sounds weird to me. He sat there to see the end. And the word that's behind end here is telos. It could mean the, the completion, the, kind of the final step. There are a lot of words that come from this that mean perfect and, and whole and things like that. But he's coming to see the end. And I'd argue that probably means he's, he's come to see the result. He wanted to see what's going to happen. What is the outcome of all of these things? And at the center of this whole thing, I want to call out that that outcome from each one of the participants in this particular story, and even in your hearts and my hearts, the outcome matters. Because typically, the outcome you want, every bone in your body, every blood cell in your veins is pushing towards that goal. Am I right? You think about it this way. Uh, how about this? Uh, the ends justifies the means. Have you ever heard that? The ends justifies the means. I'm going to suggest that's problematic. And I, and I think you would agree with me, because there is a point. Usually the people that are saying the ends justifies the means just means they, they horribly went wrong somewhere along the way, and ta-da, it turned out okay. Right? Your intentions matter. Because your intentions usually are pointing toward an end result outcome, and you're going to walk along that path doing things that you think will get you there. Right? I mean, that's, that's obvious. Let's take an example. Kids, loving your kids, defending your kids, super good thing. If you're a parent in the room, I want you to love your kids, defend your kids, take care of them. Uh, you, always. But let's just talk about that. Can I get a little overboard? Let's just imagine for a second... We've got these things called helicopter parents. We're not allowing our kids to understand the consequences of their actions, so they, they're so cushioned from it, they never know what consequence means. Um, you've got the, the, the fact that you could let your kids do whatever they want just to kind of keep them in, in their own comfort space. What if today I said, okay, I got a drug and a special suit you could put your kids in. You can put them in as soon as they're born. It's fireproof, waterproof, leak-proof, diaper-proof. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's all you need. And when they're 18, the drug basically just kind of knocks them out. They use sleeping beauty, your kids. They would be safe, right? They would be protected and defended because you could just go in in their bed. You're just to say that this drug and this suit keeps them healthy. They mature normally. Their bones grow normally. And at 18, you wake them up, take the suit off, and say, okay, go. The ends justifies means. How do I get there? Why, why did no, it matters. And the reason is, is whatever you're looking at, you're going to do toward that thing. If we look at the people in this, you can just kind of walk through the grouping. You have the religious elite in the crowds. The elite, their goal, the outcome that they're looking for is Jesus' death. The crowds 
hard to know because they're kind of wishy-washy. A little while ago, they're screaming Hosanna. Now they've got swords and, and uh, bats. But, you know, clubs. They don't have bats back then, by the way. It's a little different. Um, but you see, they're like, I don't know if actually the sword, uh, the sword and club carriers were actually screaming Hosanna, but at least the crowds, there are great crowds in both of these situations. So presumably, you could have a crossover. The religious elite, we've shown that their whole intention, everything that they chose to do, they could get to the end and say, hey, Jesus is dead. The ends justifies the means. Judas. We don't know a ton about Judas. From other Gospels, we know he carried the money. We know that he was a little greedy. But other than that, like, I, I, I want to I just caution us all to think that we're just better than Judas. Because Judas, what was his motivation? Money. Like, I, I am done with, with Jesus at this point. He's served his purpose for me, so now I'm just going to get something out of it. It's like a good stockbroker seeing the stock market saying, okay, it's going down, sell. So he sells out on Jesus for a little bit of money because that's where he was probably motivated. Like, this is no longer within my wheelhouse of what's going to be good. The good I define is at least getting me something out of this. The disciples you don't hear much in the story about them, except that they fled. So when you have a throng of people with swords and clubs, and you hear them walking in the middle of the night, and it's echoing through the olive orchard, you hear the words that are said by them and by Jesus, and you run. Their safety, their life, hard to know, but that's what it seems like. Jesus, you're awesome. We love you, but not at the cost of our lives. Not at the cost of, maybe, maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's just like, not at the cost of getting like beat up and carried in and, and brought before a judicial committee. Not, I don't want to be before the Sanhedrin. They might dig up other stuff I got going on in my life. And then Peter. Peter who, like again, I would tell you over and over, Peter loves Jesus. He does. But the outcome he's looking to is totally different than Jesus's. And what does that outcome lead him to do? It leads him to pull out a sword. Rather than stretching out his hand to heal like Jesus does, he stretches out his hand to a sword and destroys. We are not much different than all of these categories of people if we're not careful. The thing is, when pressed, we all will sell, abandon, or destroy that which we believe has no value. Right? That's how our culture has taught us. We sell, abandon, or destroy. And you can see it in every one of these. It's a lot of abandonment. Judas sells, religious elite will destroy. But what about Jesus? The end of this section simply says this, then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Who is it that struck you? 
Now here, here's a hesitation. I mean, there's something I want to caution you against as well. This can make you get real emotional and sentimental, but I want you to be thinking about the deep theological realities around this. It's fine if you want to get emotional. It's fine if you think this is horrible, because you should. But let's face it, you don't necessarily get moved. You don't change the way you look at life just because you get emotional about something. You, you start to change things when you see something is true. You start to change how you operate when you see how to operate in a true way, where it's getting you to the outcome. Now again, Peter's outcome, I want a Messiah. I want a Messiah who's going to kick butt. He's going to get us out of Rome. He's going to destroy Rome. The disciples probably the same, but not enough to die for. Right? Judas, give me some money. And the religious elite, get rid of what is endangering our whole livelihood. So what about Jesus? You can see it through all of his conversations. He says, Judas, just get on with it. He says to Peter, hey, don't you think I could defend myself in the most divinely powerful move ever? He says to the religious elite, your days are numbered. There's a new king coming. He's ascending to the throne, to the right hand of power. And his dominion, if you look at the Daniel text, is an everlasting dominion. So all the ways you rule unjustly, all the ways that you have taken the temple of God, the place where heaven and earth meet, all the ways that you have taken that off, off its course, it's done. But that requires something. It requires something. It requires, in the face of being spit on and slapped and made fun of, mockery, prophesy who hit you. And I can imagine, Jesus knows. It's like, yeah, it was you, it was you, it was you. But he would absorb all of that. But you have to ask, why? What is the end that Jesus is looking for? What is the outcome? Brothers and sisters, it's you and it's me. He would do all of this. He would absorb all of it because there was a greater good. There what glorifies the Father? The salvation of his people. That's what glorifies the Father. God's will is this new creation project. It's this idea that there's a people who no longer are go to a temple to find him, they actually have him and his law written on their hearts and they operate differently. Jesus goes, if you think about it, let's, so I said, we will sell, abandon, and destroy things that no longer have value. Jesus buys, gives perfect presence, right? And he creates. He saves. He brings back to life that which is dying and destroyed. Man. So we needed him. We needed the substitute. We needed his divine victory of the cosmos. We needed him to be an example. We needed all these things plus more. And he knew it. And that's what he was pointing to. Because you know how your Bible ends? Your Bible ends 
where the church of the living God is the bride of Christ in the presence of God, no longer son. That is his telos. That is his outcome that we all should be looking for. So what do you get? What is the outcome we should be looking for? Not the money, right? Not, not any kind of uh, short-term help from good old Jesus. I want him. Because that's what he's granted us. I want him, his presence. Because it's too easy. I mean, come on, guys, this is what I want you to think about. In your own heart, are there times when you're doing things to bless the giver because you like the gift? You like what he gives you. You like what he's offering you. And that's why, that's why he's good. No, he's good because there's nothing else. He is goodness in and of itself. So, what are the outcomes you are expecting in this lifetime? What is it you're driving towards? And I'd ask you a simple question. Does it fall in line with the very outcome that Jesus has for us? Taking every little bit of your life, every nook, every cranny, every skill, every experience, and all tucking them into this thing that's pointing toward God's goodness, the fact that he would be, want to be present with his creation, that he wants to redeem us and bring us back from the dead. Is, is that what we're doing? Or... In, in a way, sometimes when we operate, are we just simply kissing the king because of what he can give us, what we can get out of him? Brothers and sisters, you have been saved by faith in this king. It is a grace. It is a gift to you. And now we are called to live into that. Because otherwise, you look just like even the closest people to Jesus. The outcome they thought they needed was not the outcome they needed. We need our king, and we need him alone.